<laughs> it is very much the morning here, yes. Thank you for your time. There's a lot of guitars in the background. That's kind of nice to see. Yeah, uh, I spent a lot of my early years, 20s and 30s, playing music, loved Hendrix, loved the music that came out of Detroit, Iggy Pop, Fred Sonic Smith, uh, the sort of <laughs> Nuggets compilation era, that kind of thing. Presumably you're not spending a lot of time now playing K-pop and just <laughs> being, being one with your <laughs> current environment. I, my job is to try to explain Korea. The, the, the fascination with this country is incredible. I'm currently, I've got 50 international students at the moment for a winter semester. They come from all over the world and it's my job to explain Korea to them. And uh, why I thought this conversation would be interesting is because I try to present lots of different theories and ideas, sociological theories and, uh, and see what works. And I thought it would be really good if I could understand your theories and then see if this works and see how much uh, it resonates with people. Well, tell me about uh, how Korea wind up as Korea. Um, yeah, sure. It, it, it's a really difficult thing, but you only go back a few decades and South Korea was an agricultural society out of like the 1960s. Economically, it was a basket case. Nobody believed that it would achieve any sort of success. Um, it was under strict military dictatorship uh, men's hair length was regulated. Uh, there were people standing at subways, checking the books of students, what books they had in their bags. Uh, my wife, when she went to school, they had to do sort of early morning exercises. They would stand there and, and do all this. So it was very much a, a military base. And then it had first an economic revolution. Uh, Korea has no resources. So they avoided the resource curse. All they had was humans. And so they got to work and then they got rich through exports. And after they got rich, then the people wanted justice and equality and something else. So then they got democratic. And then once they got democratic, their third revolution was now we can create this intangible thing called culture and sell oh, that to the world. So they had sort of three different revolutions in the past, what, 50, 60 years, and they did it out of nowhere. It's a fascinating story. It's a real rise of the underdog almost. It's, you know, back when, you know, with time of Kenyan independence in 63, they had the same life expectancy as South Korea. And now what South Korea has a longer one than the US has without question. Yeah, it's just totally meteoric. Yes. So what, what do you think has been the most interesting cultural sort of engine that drove this and cultural consequence of this happening so fast? And um, a, lo a lot of different things. One, it has the advantage perhaps of being an homogeneously ethnic and linguistic, at least in the story that they tell themselves. Of course, they're not all 100% Korean. There's mixtures of Japan and Chinese and Mongolian. That's all in there. They don't do those I'm not sure what you call them, 23 and me tests and things like that, because if they found out that they were uh, not 100% Korean, um, but that certainly helped them. They never had a, like an internal other or something like that that they had to deal with. They all believed that they were the same one family that goes back to their founding myths. And, uh, you know, if you meet an old lady on the street, you call her grandmother. And when she sees me walking down the street with our children, she'll say, oh, look at our children. They, they use the word Uri, so uh, we will talk about Uri Nampyan, our husband and our wife, to people that you've never met. And it might just be linguistic and the whole Sapir Wharf idea, but people say our, and this idea of I, me, my has not been there linguistically in this time. So that's, that's a real big advantage, I think, that they have. That's fascinating. And, you know, Sapir Wharf. <laughs> <laughs> I know some people love it and some people hate it. And it's taken me a long time to try to understand uh, the Korean language and to think like a Korean, speak like a Korean, because they will say homework did, homework did. And there's never I, me, my, you, your, that distinction between people is not there. So that sense of togetherness is really interesting. They also had a rival. So they, they really wanted to beat Japan and they really needed to prove themselves against uh, North Korea. So what happens is, um, you know, I'm not sure if you know much about football or soccer, but why does Lionel Messi score so many goals? It's a great rival. Why did Michael Jordan get pushed to the heights? Because they have rivals and there's that sense of we must prove ourselves. That was really important. Perhaps the last one I'd say is education. This is not a culture that really values authenticity, being yourself or happiness or the joy of life. The, the first word of the Confucian Analects is this, 
is it not a great pleasure to study? And so that's the, it's not like in the beginning there was the God or this, it's, is it not a great pleasure to study? And the, uh, the, the reading and writing, the literacy rates, the intelligence of the people here is, that's such a key correlation with democracy and progress and things like that. So education and a, a together population has really helped it because you mentioned Kenya. I think there are many countries that you don't become successful just from vibes and positive thinking. It doesn't just happen because you want it. You need maybe the right mix. And one of the things when I, I was loved your book going through it is when you say how certain conditions result in beautiful uh, like mandalas or these beautiful triangular processes and others, they come to nothing and everything. So it's had the right mix. It's been very lucky. Well, once, what's the main agricultural product there? rice and nice. this this fascinated me because this was one of the things that i heard because i've been you know why are koreans collective and all the textbooks say this is a collective society and they have mahayana buddhism not theravadan buddhism here that was the state religion for six nine hundred years um they have confucianism which is this sort of interdependent identity and when I was explaining it, I would teach all of these linguistic, uh, philosophical and religious ideas why Koreans were so collective. And then I believe it was in one of your talks first that I heard this rice theory of culture. And I thought about it And the very next day, I sat down with Professor Don Baker, who's a very elderly gentleman, very high up in our field. And I mentioned maybe in Korea, it's because of rice. And he looked at me and he said, yes, went, wow, there's something, there's something. So what was, can you maybe have a, uh, your take on this rice, the importance of rice? Oh, I, I love that. And it's, I'm forgetting the guy's name, but he's making a career out of this contrast. Mm. And this collectivist versus individualistic thing is that much more interesting because, at least in his work, it's within China. It's the part of the country where ecologically and geography, whatever, mm. suitable for rice farming, which is flat floodplains. And then in the mountainous parts of the country, you do wheat and wheat is individualistic and and, and it makes wonderful sense. Um, it's supported by like these astonishing things like, like there are irrigation systems in Southeast China that are a thousand years old yeah. and have been maintained collectively by 50 villages that spread out over a hundred miles, collecting the water coming down from the mountains mm. and like just so long lasting. Um, they had a great follow-up paper. I think I probably mentioned it determined the Starbucks study showing that <laughs> like, like, these are university students in Beijing or something. This is not like bringing, the, these are the grandkids of the farmers mm. and there's that different style there. And it's wonderful. I think it's incredibly interesting. Um, and how much it's one of those like ecology, mm. like different environments make for different cultures and different means of living and all of that. So is the rice farming in Korea, is it sort of floodplain terraced stuff and cooperative? Absolutely. And it needs to be because um, I love, by the way, just that Starbucks study, because I have lots of Chinese students here. They're fascinated by K-pop and things like that. And I would ask them before saying that I'm going to talk about the, the rice theory of I've also forgotten. The, I believe it's TT. Um, nevertheless, uh, I would say, what's the difference between a person from Beijing and Shanghai? Is there is there a difference? And they sort of look at me and then they might do a little uh sort of collective agree on the answer and they I never forget what person said to be Beijing people are very rough and uh, Shanghai people are very uh, together and I went oh very interesting and of course we, you can't generalize a couple of answers to the whole population but they saw in that that the people in Beijing were more likely to move the chairs in Starbucks and try to control their environment because they come from that. Yeah. South Korea is very mountainous. It, it, there's just mountains everywhere. They believe that the gods are in the mountains. They talk about mountain spirits. And at the weekends, everybody goes hiking and walking up. Seoul is surrounded by mountains. Um, there's this wonderful Korean expression, San Nomo San. Over the mountains, there are mountains, which is kind of, you know, you might get through one thing, but then there's another problem arising because of the mountains. Nevertheless, it, it, there's very little ground to grow the rice. They don't have as much. That's why they had a smaller population. And so they were sort of interdependent on each other for so long to, to get this. And their holidays are not necessarily always the traditional ones are about 
harvests and the moons and that's what they celebrate and it's a different time every year because you have to wait um and so yeah it's such a big part and then what happens going forward because i look at young korean people today and they're some of the most hyper individualistic people in the world yeah i see that in my students who are first generation or the ones who are from korea and then suddenly in the middle of grad school they've got to stop and go home and spend two years in the military and then they yeah it's a very mm. how how is that fitting in with a thousand years of like <laughs> agree being agreeable and conformist and it's it's interesting because the textbooks will tell you that one uh, the west is sort of you know independent and this and the east is collectivist but i i can see it maybe in 50 years maybe more maybe less that the this generation of the east they might be hyper individualist and these people really rebel against parents and conformity and confucian values and they'll these are the low birth rates and the focus on career and it wouldn't surprise me if parts of the west went more collective they said we've got these problems to solve and it might be in terms of culture and group identity and intersectionality or it might be because of climate issues but it's fascinating how what we sort of perceive as these established static identities across culture, they're actually very malleable. I, I, I'm only hypothesizing. I wouldn't to see them change. Yeah. Well, you're, you're seeing it. They're happening. The, uh, the mountain rice farming presumably is crazy intense terracing. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's the... It's the rice, but also the gimchi, like the fermented vegetables and things like this. People still do it. It's called um, gimzang, where they'll get together and they'll get all this lettuce and then the spices and then the fermentation. And they have to to make the gimchi and what they'll do, they'll make cabbage. It's lovely, yeah. but they'll make so much of it all together and there'll be days and then spread it out to the family members. You come home with a big sort of Tupperware thing that's huge, <laughs> filled with this and grandmother's made gimchi again. And so I, I think it's just all the <laughs> food and uh some people will balk at this but when i first came to korea 20 years ago people would still ask me david which means david have you eaten their way of greeting each is always about food have you eaten are you okay and now it's there's such a change in what people eat what consume um it's fascinating before we do more korea because one of the re I, I can we get some a, a little bit of your main idea in your book robert and then we'll sure. transfer yeah. back to that because I've just read it and um, I love the references to Jorge Luis his favorite is the, the circular ruins. It may be the best short story in the world. I love the use of the word amokness. I think that's yeah. hilarious. The chapters on schizophrenia and epilepsy and what we as a people used to do uh, to those, it, it basically made me cry. And then I decided that I want to continue trying to be the person on stage in a musical that says Elmo or Tofu and a king walks on. <laughs> Listeners will have no idea what that means, so they should go and, uh, and read this book. But nevertheless, what is the main idea of this book? Just because some people might not know if they're listening to this about Um That when you really look at how biology works and how it interacts with environment, and how we get turned into who we are, we had virtually no control over it. And we're nothing more or less than the outcome of our luck in the most fundamental way. And that there's something really, really wrong with running the world on the notion that it's okay to treat some people way better than average for things they had no control over and other people way worse, no control. And to just slather on sort of myths of it being a just world. And, uh, and amid, like, if the notion that there's no free will and you didn't earn your, your things that you're stellar at and all of that, if that bums you out, like, stop, you're one of the lucky ones. Mm -hmm. um, if, if that's what disappoints you, if that's upsetting, if that means that you really didn't earn your Nobel Prize and instead, you know, you're one of the lucky ones. What we see instead is like over and over and over in history, every time we subtract out a sense of responsibility, the world becomes more humane. And so this idea that we are a product of um, sort of our, our genetics, which then react in the environment, and it's hard for us to choose. I, I find it fascinating because for the last couple of 
I've said to my students this ridiculous question, do you choose your values or do your values choose you? Because what I noticed is that I have young Indonesian women coming because they love K-pop and they're, they're Muslim and they're wearing a hijab. And then I have blue haired non-binary people from Minnesota and I have everybody in between all the colors and it's wonderful. And what I noticed is over the years that when we discuss gendering career, T issues here and mental health and nationalism and race, that to a certain extent, I could predict their actions and behavior, of course, not 100%. But I wondered about that. And then I wondered about myself. I grew up in the United Kingdom. I, I support sort of LGBT communities and I'm okay with feminism. But did I actually ever choose that? Did I ever sit down and go, hmm, so I didn't make my values. They chose me. But why do you do all these things? And then I said, maybe I don't do them, they do me. And I've been thinking about this for a couple of years and asking my students these ridiculous questions. And I read your book and went, maybe it's not just sort of stoner six form philosophizing. Maybe there's an actual science that not only our behavior, but our values and how we walk. Hold. So is there a sense of that, Robert, that, you know, it's what we do and how we be I mean, so incredibly by grew up and how we grew up. Absolutely. You know, I, th I think in terms of like, if a little more of this had happened to me back when, or a little less of that, or I can see exactly how it would be a completely different <laughs> life for me. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's clear to me. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's very compelling when you put all the pieces together you can't rule out free will with neuroscience you can't rule it out with genetics and you can't but put them all together mm. and it turns into one discipline it turns into one matrix of the intersecting parts and there's no room in there for like behavior being driven by something that is completely free of all that biology and completely free of history and all all we are is history so it just seems self-evident to me by now yeah and i sort of i i agree with you and i i would say to myself sort of in my head there but for the grace of god go i just because that's the language which i had to express that that could be me. And I knew that if I grew up in the 1980s in South Korea, rather than the South of England, that I might have very different views about gender and sexuality and Japan and America. And it was, you know, I, I'm as credible product of my environment. When I was speaking to my Korean teacher yesterday and giving this idea uh, to her, she looked at me and she said, yeah, but criminal. He said this in Korea. And that seems to me some of the responses when I've been testing out this idea, um, getting ready to try to incorporate it into lectures and things that if we don't have free will, if we are all a product, yes, that's very good. And I've always forgiveness and these kind of understanding. I, I've intrinsically felt that, but I always just thought it was a personality. Um, but many people say, yeah, but criminal. And what I noticed in your book is that you're trying to make us more humane, not less human. You're not trying to create a society in which we sort of nothing really matters is in nihilistic. And what about somebody that runs over children with a car or who kidnaps these things that you had a sentence in this book is trying to, to make us better people. It's almost like a, I use the word very loosely, like a new Bible, an updated way of doing the world. Could you perhaps talk about how you believe this affects law and justice and criminal behavior very for us? Well, well, God help me for using such a cringy, woke <laughs> phrase, but um, I think if you study like the biology of behavior, what you're you're doing some weirdo obscure version of doing social justice. And it's mm. it's so clearly the case that uh, our best moments and worst moments we have very little control over, and it makes for a very crappy world when we pretend that judgments are valid and such. Um, in terms of criminal justice, it's funny. I'm I'm writing a sort of my half of a debate right now that's going into some law journal where they. <laughs> where they say you have your head up your rear and this is <laughs> makes no sense at all and what about criminals and all of that um and what i think like we're really very good at subtracting responsibility out of stuff we do it in all sorts of domains yeah. and the key point is we do that so automatically by now 
that we can't even recognize that this is a circumstance where we've subtracted out free will. Okay, so like criminality, quarantine models, just constrain them and not one inch more than that, and no moralizing, and it's not a virtue in and of itself, and mm. look at root causes and all of that, and like, oh yeah, that's like ridiculous. And like every parent uses a quarantine model at some point or other, which if their five-year-old gets a, a nose cold, don't send them to kindergarten tomorrow. They have a rule saying, please, if your child has a nose cold, keep them home until they're feeling better so they don't get everybody else sick. Oh my God, it's a it's a quarantine model. Your child is dangerous. It's a danger to five-year-old society and all of that. And like, oh yeah, obviously, like they just have a nose cold. But then you look at the history of thinking about illness and like we sit here now and say, yeah, nobody's saying like bad people get nose colds, that that's a moral state. But we used to. We used to think that illness was a mark of divine judgment, that mm -hmm. there's a correspondence between external beauty and internal and, and like we absolutely, and all this is, is a measure is, oh, we've subtracted that nonsense out so long ago, we can't even see that keep your kid home if they have a nose cold is a case of freeing the planet from like a notion that there's free will. Mm -hmm. This one just happened to have gotten done a century ago or so. And like tuberculosis is the disease of people who have bad habits living in their crowded ghettos and stuff. And, and like disease as a metaphor for like a shitty soul. Mm. Yeah. People used to really believe that. Um, and those were the exact same cases. Like if it was 400 years ago, you know, I probably, probably would have believed in witches and I probably would have been a nice liberal about it though, saying that, well, make sure like before you burn her at the stake, make sure somebody's going to raise the kids after they're left alone. Let's, let's think about uh, sort of the fallout from these things. But nonetheless, it would have made basic sense. Um, and now it doesn't because it's a, different century and like it's impossible for us to look at and say oh bad weather yesterday that was caused by a witch wow we don't think that way anyway mm -hmm. it's like it's just such a given but at one point we subtracted free will out of that um and like by definition mm -hmm. if it seems self-evident that like you don't blame people for bad weather what that means is you were born in this century instead of four centuries ago and stuff that seems self-evident and intuitively due to some people or crappier humans than others come back 400 years from now and it's going to seem as self-evident that no, actually they had no control over that one. I, I find, you know, teaching and all of that, the hardest version of that that I have to overcome is to have special admiration for the students who are working harder. Yeah. Like, okay, this, there's the guy sitting in the back of the seminar who's just like fucking brilliant and like he's just, and it's effortless and that's great. That's cool. And, uh, but, oh, this kid where, you know, they, they don't quite, but damn, they're working hard. You're seeing them at their best. Enough. And uh, like, I respond to that. I, I find every way to bump their grade up a little bit because I have this stupid sort of residual free will belief that like hard work is a virtue rather than another biological property. Yeah, it's really hard to override this stuff, but there's a whole bunch of it we've been overriding for hundreds of years and we don't even notice it anymore. It's so automatic. Do you, and I love all the examples that you play out and you talk about, I think, your own left-handedness and <laughs> that aspect of it. Do you think in a way that we already knows it's just a case of we get it, we're slowly getting that way, you know, it's that sort of maybe Hegelian sort of we're understanding our consciousness or Ukiyami and Marxian that we know this and, you know, we're slowly realizing it. It's not permeating entire culture yet. Do you believe that, I, I can't ask you to predict the future, but when I was reading, I, I felt a sense of, yeah, we're sort of witnessing a change here. Do you believe that this will go through the justice system as it went through the medical system, as it went through the uh, child education system, that it's slowly coming and we, we know this at a deep level, 
but it just takes some time to that cultural lag and get over that attachment to the cell, all of these other hookups that we have. Absolutely. Because like, you know, whatever went on when they figured out witches didn't exist back when, some of these transitions have occurred like in our lifetime. When I was a kid, I, I, I seemed to be somewhat older than you. When I was a kid, you're sitting there in elementary school and the kid next to you is simply not learning how to read. And it's obvious they weren't smart and they were lazy and they couldn't focus and all of that. And then people discovered dyslexia and people discovered there's like an anatomical basis to, oh, it's like a real thing. And that's been within my lifetime. I, I, I live in San Francisco, which is traditionally like the strongest gay culture of any city in the U.S. And when I first moved here, um, the majority of Americans thought the most ludicrous thing on earth was the notion of gay marriage. And now, as of a few years ago, the majority of Americans think it's like, okay, what, like something shifted there, something. And whether it's, whether it needs a catalyst of somebody famous who suddenly reveals that actually they have a sibling who has schizophrenia and they're for the first time going to talk about it or somebody like an amazing male jock comes out as trans and suddenly she's caitlin jenner and like wow when she was a he he was on the box of like cheerios and stuff showing <laughs> how she was an icon of like masculinity and stuff. and like those are the ones that catalyze the change like the the transition from like you know you have your opinion about thems and they're not very positive and this transition to suddenly having room for oh but that one that's a good them they're they're the exception and psychologically they become an honorary us and then like just how much of an amazing good them does it take to cause a, a shift in the whole view of it yeah this is just going to keep happening over and over um it fascinates me what are the most effective cultural catalysts to get this to happen and it's sure not going to be from authorities telling you hey did you know that sexual orientation is a biologically fixed trait and it's not going to come from lectures about being it's somebody's cool and like it's cool and you suddenly realize you don't really care anymore that they are a them and that's the transitions um can i add one suggestion here before we perhaps talk about changing morality career because i have an idea about that that what is the catalyst it might be a celebrity it, it might be media rather than lectures because i believe as humans we we're very much driven by narratives if you give people statistics and facts they'll go huh but if you give them a story then they really respond that uh, I was teaching the, the birth of Korean democracy and in the Korean democracy movement, they have this idea called Uisa, which is a patriotic martyr. And it's the idea of martyrdom as a catalyst that when somebody dies, when there is a great injustice and it might not be the many people might have died. It might not be the first. It might not be the last, perhaps in American context, Floyd uh, in the Black Lives Matter, but they become a symbol for something much greater. And it's when there is that that happens that humans really get behind a movement. And I often, and it, it, it's very true in South Korea, uh, two gentlemen, Park Jong-chol and Lee Han-yol, they were sort of Ivy League uh, educated people, Seoul National University and Yonsei, they died and now their pictures, their faces are commemorated and they're the symbols of the democratic movement. And I, I often ask myself and my students, do we need more movement? As humans, can we ever get there without the blood? Can we sort of virtualize the blood or is the catalyst often for the Bible? Is the catalyst often a, could it be, does it need to be martyrdom sometimes or a death? Yeah, or maybe you could just have a watered down version of that in terms of martyrdom, Arab Spring, was triggered by one single martyr, but like an equivalent here, like the football, the, the American football uh, quarterback who like 10 years ago decided as a, as a protest against racism, he was not going to stand at attention for 
the national anthem. And he got driven out of football and he's 10 times more famous now, but he his career was destroyed by that. So that's, you know, that's a low rent version of martyrdom, but mm -hmm. nonetheless, he certainly walked the walk there and paid a price. And yeah, it doesn't have to be that they lay you in the center of the town square for martyrdom. Um, you know, they, they're subtler versions. Could be symbolic, yes. When you talk about morality and how we're changing uh, celebrities on Cheerios packet, one of the biggest differences here in South Korea is young people's attitude towards any from gender and sexuality and race to their, their grandparents. And that huge change suggestible. Are you a better person than your grandparents? Are your grandparents bad people? And that seems really bad to think of because there is <laughs> such there is such difference, vast, vast. And in in your book, you talk about how that if there is a a bad smell in the room we become more socially conservative and how we're so informed in our views by the environment we live in now south korea has really used this word very carefully civilized in terms of society's not smelly anymore society's like really clean and just a spit and early visitors said country smells because they would use human feces as fertilizer the kimchis and the pickles and the outside toilets and and now this place is really clean so i just wonder does our moralities do we get more moral more just whatever the words are as our environment does as our environment gets cleaner we have a propensity cleaner in our attitude towards others is that too much of a stretch um i think that is the case but it's a double-edged sword. We get more taken with cleaner and all of that. And we are more insistent on seeing the purity underneath somebody's surface and understanding that they are soiled by circumstance and mm. that kind of thing. So that, you know, that's a good outcome. On the other hand, um, this very solid literature on social conservatives are more upset about <laughs> contamination mm. than social progressives are. And that's a very different version of the outcome of suddenly, like, ooh, like somebody, what, what, what was in the movie Parasite, the line where the, the wealthy guy, this wonderful new driver and mm. saying, yeah, he smells, he smells, he smells poor. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, that you know, sensory disgust is a gateway to deciding you have rationally based moral disgust. So that could that could cut both ways. Um, I mean, the trouble is one could feel very, very warm hearted about people on this planet who don't have clean water and and typhoid in their and all of that. And, but nonetheless, it's like kind of unpleasant to sit next to them on the subway. If like you suddenly got a Maasai herder who is like covered in fly shit all over his face and because they're just, and like, oh, you understand. But yeah, there's, yeah. Bringing viscera into it, people get a whole lot less rational. So that's definitely not, not necessarily a good trend there in Korea. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because we'll become more sensitive to those outside of our, if they smell different, if they look different, I, I vividly, a lady on the subway when I first arrived smelling, I mean, there's this idea that Western people smell of milk because our diets were so different because we eat bread and milk. Many South Koreans used to be lactose intolerant, didn't have the diets and that's all changing. But there was now the smell of Korea has gone. It, it, it's almost it doesn't smell anymore really changed when you talk about this double-edged there's another thing really worried me and this is in terms of children and birth rate. and now one of the things that i often have to explain to, to international south korea it has the lowest birth rate in the world the lowest fertility and you go back to the 1960s and 70s and the government was saying please stop having children like six is too many just have a couple that's fine now we're in the stage that the birth rate is like 0 0.7, 2.1 to maintain it, but it's so incredibly low. But by the same token, it has a 2% roughly teenage pregnancy. There's very few children here born out of wedlock. There's very few, I don't use these words disrespectfully, accidental children or things like this. You talk about the real importance of 
children and I'll get my words wrong here, it's science, prefrontal cortex. And you can look at that by age of five and their conditions and the mother, whether they drink while the child's in the womb and all of this, that there's fewer children born here, but the ones that are being, are generally being born in a determined way. People are consciously choosing to have the children and because they have fewer children, they then dote on them more and they spend more time with them where possible. It's not like you have six children because one might die and one's going to get typhoid and they run amok. You're out in the fields. They're, that's changed. And that will surely, in a sense, according to these studies, give them a better sense of self, give them better chances of success or how it works out that they'll be raised better in a better environment. And so we have fewer, but better poor. That sounds like a really bad thing to say, but that I couldn't help but think this when I was reading your work that do, do you understand where I'm going with this? I'm not trying to be like sort of disrespectful or eugenics, but I couldn't help but think that how we raise children important, it's so important to raise them correctly as best as we can. Yes. And like probably the two things in that realm that everybody would agree on is like some people shouldn't have kids and maybe it should be taken to the point of handing out like a license to have a kid that if you're competent enough. And the second point being, uh, who gets to decide what counts as competent um, and the variability there in that. And what cultures do is raise kids to propagate the culture into the next generation. And and like mothering is an attempt to have your child form a brain like your own. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like hugely iffy to decide what counts as a better trend of like a finer poppy. If they're living longer, if they're killing each other less, if they're taking care of old people, if there's more literacy, if like people don't like litter as much or, you know, all of those are kind of reasonable metrics for what counts as the world working better. But much beyond that, it's it's getting on very thin ice in terms of culture-specific values. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What amazed me, perhaps, with career and children is that uh, coming from the UK, you would um, have a child come home from the hospital after two days. They would say, good luck. You go and put the baby up in a room, put a speaker by it, and you go downstairs. And uh, here, co-sleeping, sleep with family members, that goes on for a long time. There's a very sort of that, that bond between the mother and the children really seems to last a long time across a lot of families that has different effects on relationships between husbands and wives and all those things. Those bonds are uh, really, really close. Is a low birth rate, South Korea is always at the top or bottom of lists. It rarely finds itself in the middle. It, it, it's really a country of such, ex I, I often joke to people that if ever legalized marijuana or something, all the people would be going, we must be the number one smoking country in the world. And they demand <laughs> that success. Um, but just on that low birth rate, I've sometimes tried to frame it as a, a problem. Modern life is very different. You need a house, maintain all these things. And so the solution that people find because they want to live, they, to, to keep going is, well, this not have, that's the, that's how they manage their way through life. Worry about falling birth rates or do we exist in a crisis of love? Is there some kind of existential thing going on or we find a way through? Um, well, it's pretty unprecedented um you know people people do not have a long history of voluntarily foregoing passing on copies of their genes even amid you know some pretty dramatic examples of like culturally based celibacy and things like that um it's it's a problem from obviously the are we going to have enough young people working enough to be able to pay the pensions of old people that seems to be a time bomb is it is it guaranteeing that we're going to have to have a world of ais substituting for humans at all sorts and pioneering that um is it worrisome that that is occurring amid still catastrophically high reproductive rates occurring in the least developed parts of the planet? Mm -hmm. um, and what's that heading one towards? On the other hand, Thomas Malthus, 
like whatever number centuries ago was saying, whoa, it's a really bad thing that the educated upper class have fewer children. At some point, everybody on earth is going to be the descendants of these ruffians from like the bad part of London or, and somehow that doesn't happen too much. Um, it's fascinating. The ecologist, Paul Ehrlich, who became renowned, notorious in the early 60s with a book, The Population Bomb, mm -hmm. which basically started the zero population growth movement. And he was like, so he's 90 now. He's a friend. He's a colleague in my department. We like have written some stuff together and all of that. And saying, so what? What do you think about this? What, what do you think about even China has passed a peak. All the best estimates are that Earth's population overall is going to start declining probably within about 50 years or so. Um, separate of the fact that this is kind of different from what you were predicting, how are we going to get into trouble here? And his notion over and over is that, you know, we've spent a long time having cultures accommodating the fact that there are people who are disposable, who disposable in a literal sense or disposable in the sense of like their needs really don't count anywhere near as much as anyone else's, or maybe their needs don't count at all. And, you know, that's going to disappear. We're going to have a culture where each individual is, you know, matters in hopefully a more humane way. Um, but that's going to be something very different. Does transhumanism come into this? Because I love this idea. I, I just blew my mind of that, you know, if you take evolution and you look at the sort of growth of where we were and our ancestors walking on all fours and all of that, why would this be the final? Why would this be the end point? A ridiculous question. But if we have evolved, surely do, do you see changes in the human structure in the human form do we go i mean out in science fiction much forth but do we change as, as birth rates change as the environment changes and the culture changes is this change or is this no i mean one one of the fallacies in thinking about evolution is that it is directional that is preparatory for conditions that will come in the future that is by definition adaptive and that it could reach a plateau we're here it's worked out okay because all you have at any given point evolutionarily is a population whose gene pool is most adaptive for what was going on one generation ago. And, you know, whatever changes, changes. So there's no stasis in the slightest. Um, you know, one version of that was, I don't know, back when at one point when people were getting totally freaked out about antibiotic resistant bacteria and such, of saying, this may be the last generation where scraping your knee is not potentially life-threatening. <laughs> like, you may be back to that again. Um, or, you know, where the future is going to consist of selecting for people who are not subject to melanomas because of, like, increased, like, some people who are most biologically resistant to depression and anxiety, people who, and those are going to be some of the trends of where things are happening and being really good at having your body deal with a world where antibiotics don't work anymore. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, it's constantly, there's, there's no such thing as stasis in evolution and there's no such thing as planning ahead. It's only reactive. And that's why we sometimes, I guess, have trouble. We're never getting it perfect. We're reacting and then we, we adapt to it. And then the situation and the context changes. And so we're, we're almost always playing catch up and we never quite get it perfect. Um, let me give you this one idea of this, this thing that happens in career and, and see what you might make of it. There's this, because it happens all over. And then when my international students see it and I tell Koreans that this doesn't happen in other parts of the world, you know that. And they're like, <laughs> a, Korean, a Korean person will walk into a coffee shop and they will get their iPad, their laptop, their $2,000 piece of equipment or their phone or their car keys. They'll put it down on the table and then they'll go over to the counter and they might go outside and vape, make a phone call, go to the pharmacy. They'll come back in 
and their things will be there. And they don't expect anybody else to take it. They don't even ask the person next to them, can you watch my stuff, please? Because if you talk to a, a, a stranger in South Korea, they look at you and go, like you're crazy. What do you want from me? And <clears throat> I, I, I called this idea Malm spaces. I did, there was no word for it. The word Malm mind. And I love to student because I'll ask them first, can you all point to the clock on all one, two, say, can you point to the door? One, two, three. they'll all point. And I'll say, can you point to your mind? One, two, and all the Koreans, the majority, they point to their chest and all the international students are pointing to their head and the Koreans see them. And they go, oh, 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 wait, hang on. Where do I point? <laughs> <laughs> and they get very flustered by the fact they pointed in the wrong place, but they didn't. Um, but so I called it Malm spacing for that. But there's this thing that this doesn't happen in other parts of inside and it's a beautiful things there and expect them to still be there no of course there is theft goes on bicycle but i find it wonderful i'm worried that one day it might go away that we can in a starbucks in downtown in a coffee shop in the treeside your stuff is safe this doesn't happen and i i wonder if you have any response hearing this because i, I i'm not sure that if it happens in san francisco or this is a a, a natural do you have any take on this robert Oh, it's it's like the greatest extension of of collectivist mindset of like your pain is my pain. If you count as the right sort of person, if you're one of us, your pain is my pain and I steal your laptop and that's like yeah. And the the notion that the big contrast in terms of like criminal justice, like the cliche is East Asian cultures are shame societies and Western cultures are guilt societies. And that really doesn't hold up very well. It's much more about, nor is it like a likelihood of getting caught. Um, it's much more about whose pain registers with you. Um, and I think that's that's much more the predictor. No doubt that has a huge amount to do with the homogeneity and ethnic homogeneity and all of that. Um, but that's a very different one from just simply, oh, if you get caught, you will be terribly shamed in front of every... It's a world that's this much more collective, like... Yeah, you do something crummy to someone and you're almost doing it to yourself. And it's a different version of I don't do something crummy to other people. I am not hateful because I'm going to, no person's actions are going to allow me to soil my soul with hatred kind of thing. That's a very individualistic version of like, why be nice to people? Um, the I understand your pain because your pain is the same sort of flavor and same like model as my pain is, I think is much more what it's about. Is there a biological element to that then? There must be. So, you know, I've always looked at it, that collectivist. Or, so it's not moral in a sense, but the reason people will not take or steal from others, well, they see themselves an extended family or they see them everybody as an us rather than a them. But it's because if I do that, that person pain, and, and there's a biological or something's going on mechanicalistically inside them? Well, the brain is is evolved in a very interesting way to feel somebody else's pain. Um, there's a part of the brain where there's neurons in there that could not distinguish between your pain and your loved one's pain. Um, like in a very literal, you stick an electrode into one of these neurons in this part of the brain, and it cannot distinguish between the two in the same way that in another part of the brain, there are neurons that cannot distinguish between a disgusting smell and a disgusting moral act. Um, so pain could be that real. And of course, what becomes pertinent is where, where the boundary is of an us and them, the, the biology of pain empathy is really powerful um but the culture of where you put up the arbitrary dividers is uh you know enormously important and and explains an awful lot of who is miserable and who is not on this planet it seems that because korean in general they have such a strong sense of us that it also by dint of that increases the sense of them there's us and them because the whole country is united and and they don't call Korea Korea they call it Urinara our country they go back to that and so everybody that's inside Korea is us but then because of the strength of that because of the strength of that us 
other the them becomes so it seems like as we talked about children and morality and cleanliness that it's always this balance between how do we get these opposites in tow it is if suicide this is a very dark topic and i i'm sorry for going there but international media always i did spain and denmark whenever they want to speak to me it's always about a dark topic. can we talk about something nice please but <laughs> suicide seems to come up with a lot and <clears throat> what i've noticed that as south korea looked, as it's got richer as it's got more modern as the oppression and the military dictatorship has gone away as the standard of living the morality so have health that now people seem unhappy in one of your and, and that seems illogical it doesn't seem to make sense that people the beautiful country that's out there today that's safe and clean you walk the street 12 o'clock and the parks are maintained there's no graffiti on them and uh, outside exercise and as this has happened people have seemingly become unhappy and when people lived under dictatorship and oppression and poverty and they didn't have much to eat they didn't report as many problems. They didn't have as high a suicide rate. In one of you, I don't know if happy, it's the happiness, the pursuit. South Korea always had a pursuit. It had a pursuit, must modernize. And there were these banners all around. It was very conscious banners all around the country. We must develop, we must build a country. And then we must throw over the dictators. Always had a pursuit. They always had a goal. And now sometimes you see the goal. Is there a goal? Do countries these days, do they have a goal? Do people have <clears throat> a goal in their life? If the sky is infinite, but empty at the same time, have any observations of why as a seed only gets sadder or as a country is developed economically and, and culturally that suicide rates at the same time have alongside that because it doesn't seem to be also so tragically sad. Well, I think probably a piece of that is you know, one feature of westernization and having that kind of thing is social connectiveness weakens, social capital weakens, trust goes down, sense of collective efficacy goes down because that's antithetical to, you know, Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is the most individualistic place on earth because it's got every single misanthrope from around the planet who managed to get really, really good at CS and got a work visa mm. is now become a millionaire in Silicon Valley. It's a selective place for the most, most restless minds and the most dissatisfaction with the present and the strongest tendencies towards thinking, but what have I done lately? And it's hugely corrosive because like as soon as you get past the point of like having enough food to feed your family and that's taken care of um all sorts of much more superficial values come in there and much of it is built around I and mean, i my kids went to a school with lots of silicon valley hot shots and stuff and you see these the parents and they were all having the same crisis of of when is enough enough um well, the last public offering was incredibly successful and our house is 24,000 square feet an hour or whatever. And do I need to do another startup again? Do I need to prove that one wasn't a fluke? Do I need to prove that I'm immortal? Do I need to? And it's very corrosive. Um, uh, and sort of, I, I, you know, in my time, lots of time in East Africa, hanging out with like Maasai people who was the tribe closest to where I've done my field work all those years. Mm. Unbelievable things like there's an old man sitting around camp because people would just come to sit there because it was like interesting place to hang out and observe these strange white people. Um, and so like some old man and this friend who's like hanging out in camp and we're talking and I mentioned something about him and she comes up behind him and she puts her hands on his shoulders and she said he was a handsome man when he was young soon he will be dead <laughs> oh my god that's the most upsetting thing on earth and then Silicon Valley is the world center of funding of completely crackpot scientific research for immortality. Mm. And like there's more Silicon Valley moguls who are going to have their heads frozen and put in some underground bunker when they die because like that's that's the mindset. Okay, I get it. Now let's figure out how to defeat death. 
it's, it's an itchiness that, you know, you don't get where you are without having a certain willingness to have given up all sorts of sources of like basic primate comfort, like knowing somebody always has your back and there will always be somebody to groom you and there will be always somebody for you to groom back, which is probably even more important. And like you say yes to one version of modernity and there's a gazillion no's that are implicit in that. I've seen stories of these people that are trying to beat their genes or do all of this and their, their real age and their genetic age. From this part of the world, I'll tell you one very quick story about death and bring the, the conversation to a close because I'll be very busy. About uh, nine years ago, my mother-in-law passed away from cancer and um, she was, there's a three-day ceremony where you have to sit in there and send sticks burning three days and the family stay in together. You sleep, the sticks don't go out and big picture of her. After three days, we went to the crematorium and I was doing all this, having nobody explain any, just going along with it. And um, we watched the box that she was in get burnt on a video screen. And then we were ushered to this room and there was a man behind a glass and we were all there, the direct family member. And he got, this is a bit graphic, so forgive me, but it's 100% real. I can't get it out of my mind. My mother and he got the bones that had, from the cremation. And then with a, a sort of a power tool, he started grinding them in front of us behind the screen. And the people in the room were wailing and hitting the glass. Nobody told me this was going to happen. I'd be ping on a door for, floor for three days. I'd had far <laughs> too much soju to try to get through this emotional thing. And I, I was sort of pinching myself. Is this really happening? And he did it until dust. He a box and veil belt, picked up the box. So they knew it was their family but that was the reason and they gave me the box at one point to walk out the box was still warm that was a very strange feeling we then went to a temple out on the west coast a buddhist temple we walked by and we walked for about 10 minutes we found a lovely the spot had already picked out by my father and the ashes every year we go back to that and we have to walk through the mountains and it's it's very cold and we pour some alcohol on the floor and we talk and we say the children are growing up now and maybe it's still too much this is happening <laughs> i took my mum from england there one, uh, while she was in korea and she was there and as we're walking die i think i want to <laughs> 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 it was just a lovely way of a, a very non-modern way perhaps but it, it was brilliant. For, I know you're very busy and you asked for your hour. Can I ask you three kind of quick closing questions to do this? The first sure. one is weird. I have nothing going on. I'm not sure if I've quietened my monkey mind through <laughs> meditation or various other things or whether I'm an NPC that just doesn't have a conscience. I'm not quite sure what's going on. And I've only realized that other people have one voice or many voices. Their voice is nice. Their voice is too noisy. I love asking people about this to see the differences. Do you have any observations on inner monologues and what's going on? No, I wish I did. It's fascinating that you don't have that because I assumed that was kind of a universal. Um, what interests me in terms of the realm of things like mental illness mm. is uh, the biology of why schizophrenic individuals hear voices um, because their inner voice gets mistaken for an outer one, and there's a neurochemistry as to why that's the case. Um, no, why why that is so, and why certain versions of it are so uh, compelling. Um, in some cases, to get people to do very very imprudent things, um, it's fascinating. It's yeah. tough to study, though. Absolutely. And I think we always imagine that other people experiences like ours. And it's only when I get a, you know, a room full of 50 kids and I'm like, well, let's just talk about this a little bit. What's yours like? What's yours like? And then suddenly our eyes open and go, we're also very different, but we imagine what's working is the same. Perhaps we lack the explain it. Um, second one, I have two young in doing your work and in saying there is no free will this is what matters this is how it goes on did it affect this might be too personal but does it affect the way you raised or do you have any advice on that or is it but, but did it have any effect on on how you raise children or how you live your personal life in that sense well i've thought that there's no such thing as free will since i was about 14 and where it is absolutely clear in my mind that blame and punishment 
for their own sake and praise and reward for their own sake and a sense of entitlement are not only like scientifically insupportable, they're ethically appalling, all of that is. And like once every three weeks, I can actually function that way for a couple of minutes. It's really, really hard It because we are individuals of our time and place. And like somebody cuts me off in traffic and I think they're a rotten human for at least as initial reflex or somebody says to me, whoa, nice shirt you're wearing today. And for three seconds afterward, I will think I am a better human than average because of that. And it's really, really hard to fight against. So I guess what winds up being, I don't know, prescriptive, whether for one's kids or the world or whatever, if you start thinking this way is it's going to be really, really hard, um, but at least save the effort for where it really matters for when you think for some reason you should be able to go to the front of the line or in a circumstance where you are judging someone harshly and it turns out you haven't a clue who they are and how they wound up that way. So save it for when it matters. But yeah, it's not easy at all. And as I was driving to work yesterday, because I've been listening to your talks, somebody tried to cut in the line while I was driving and I let them... It's not easy, but sometimes I feel that we're surrounded by so much negativity. The news is, here's terrible, 10 terrible things that happened, and now the way. And it's very, <laughs> and very hard sometimes to get stories of love and hope and positivity. It feels almost corny or cliche, but sometimes maybe a sense of positive gaslighting and telling people it will be okay. Uh, I, I think those messages go a long way. And so um, whether or not we have free will, I know you certainly, I, I think your book had an effect. I, I hope that it Thank you. your time. Uh, I, I wish you all the best and um, I, I'm glad that I have you on there. Thanks. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks. Take care, David.